And as you're grabbing your seat, go ahead and take your Bible and open up to Romans chapter 11. We're going to finish off Romans chapter 11 this morning. And I know that you're wondering why uh, we're only singing one song and then I'm preaching. And I think, um, just so you know, uh, we were just going to go just straight off into preaching, but thought that, uh, you know, maybe some of you could use one song to, to get here um, because you wouldn't be on time um, or... Um, simply just because it was cold and you needed to warm your heart up a little bit too, um, which is perfectly fine. Uh, the reason we're doing this like this this morning is because my sermon is going to be about an hour and a half. I'm just kidding. That's not the reason. There is a very specific reason why, why we're doing this, and I know it's a little bit untraditional. Um, not only is it not a traditional Christmas message or Christmas passage this morning, our order of service is a little bit untraditional. And that sometimes is a little bit jarring. Um, every church has a liturgy, a form or order of the way they typically do worship. Not that it's etched in stone, but we kind of get used to the way we do things. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with forms of liturgy, with the way we typically do a worship service. But there are times where it's appropriate, and maybe even right, to adjust things, to shake things up a little bit. And I, I want to suggest the reason we're doing this this morning is not just for the sake of mixing things up. It's in a very intentional way to mirror the text that we're going to be looking at. This passage culminates in praise. It's, it's an incredible passage, and it's referred to, the last part of this passage is referred to as a doxology, which is a word that simply means to praise. Paul, in other words, is culminating all of his discussion and talk and argument about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's culminating it with this capstone here at the end of chapter 11 with this proclamation of praise. He finishes this amazing body of theology in chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. And I just want you to see it's so powerful and it's so important we recognize this. He ends it on this note of praise. You see, it's through his study, his deep thinking about the gospel that he is then brought to deep praise for the gospel, and this ought to be instructive for us. Paul is teaching us, by way of his own example, how we ought to be thinking about our thinking of the gospel. That when we really begin to understand the gospel, when we marinate in it, when we're processing it rightly, it does lead to a proper response. And Paul says that response includes and maybe, maybe culminates in absolute adoration and praise of God. You see, our theology cannot be and should not be disconnected from our doxology. Our theology, the study of God, cannot be separated from doxology, which is our worship or praise of God. These two things are not separate entities. Sadly, they are in many Christian lives. They're not to be viewed as silos. Instead, they're to be viewed as intimately married together, woven together, back and forth, creating this beautiful symphony in our hearts. And I can't think of a better way to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas than to think about the gospel and to think about how the gospel leads us to greater praise. I want to read, beginning at verse 25, what Paul says. He says this, look at it with me. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they, that is the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy." 
For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Do you see how Paul connects his theology to his doxology, his study and knowledge of the gospel to his praise to God for the gospel? It's unmistakable, and we're going to do the same thing this morning. In fact, what I want to give to you kind of as a a gift for your Christmas uh, week, I hope, is this. I want to give you three truths to make your heart sing this Christmas. Three truths to make your heart sing this Christmas. And the first truth is this, God's awesome mystery. God's awesome mystery. That's what Paul unpacks in verses 25 through 29. Now remember, he's addressing this problem of pride that is welled up in the hearts of many of the Gentile believers as they begin to think that they are more important than the Jewish uh, ethnic Jews because they seem to think that God has rejected Israel because Israel has en masse rejected Jesus Christ. We looked at that last week, and Paul debunks that. He addresses that in full, this problem of Jewish unbelief, that if true, would call into question God's faithfulness to his word and his faithfulness to his promises. So he's debunked that, and he's shown that God is not, in fact, finished with Jewish People And so he tells the Gentiles, don't be arrogant. Don't begin to think more highly of yourselves than you ought. And he kind of continues in that same way of thinking right at the beginning of verse 25. Do you see what he says? Lest you be wise in your own sight. That's another way of saying it. Don't, don't think you've got this all figured out. Don't think that you've got it sorted. In fact, he goes on to tell them that there's been a bit of a mystery in all of this. That's what he wants to address here. He says, don't don't be arrogant, don't be wise in your own sight. And what he wants them to understand is that all Israel will be saved. God's rejection is not total or final. And he says to them, I want to unfold this mystery for you. I want you to have some kind of an understanding of what I'm trying to say. Now, when you think of mystery... I need you to understand, like, don't think of like some murder mystery and trying to figure something out um, that's difficult like that. I want you to think in terms of it like this. Biblically speaking, a mystery is something that was previously hidden but is now revealed. There were semblances of it in the Old Testament, for example. There were glimpses of it, but it has not been fully and accurately understood until New Testament revelation has come along to make it crystal clear. And specifically, what Paul is doing is he's looking back at the Old Testament, and he's, he's looking at what was unclear through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Jesus Christ, who is, by the way, the greatest hermeneutical Bible study key that you could possibly understand. You cannot fully understand the Old Testament unless you understand how Christ is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises, that Christ is the one that all the Old Testament is pointing to, and so much of the New Testament is helping us see how the Old Testament actually fits together in Christ. And so he wants to reveal this mystery. Again, let me make this clear. The broad Old Testament expectation was that salvation of ethnic Jews would come first, okay, and then subsequent salvation of the Gentiles. If you read through the Old Testament, that would be the natural conclusion or the most obvious conclusion that you would come to. You follow? That the Jews would be saved first, and then through the Jews... The Gentiles would be saved that that would be the order of salvation. In fact, Paul, all the way back in in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, do you remember when he talks about not being ashamed of the gospel? He actually tells us, right, that, that, that his order is to the Jews first and then the Gentiles. If you were to read through the book of Acts, do you want to know what you see? That pattern is evidenced to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. It's very clear. 
the early church was predominantly Jewish. The explosion of the gospel on Pentecost went out first and primarily to the Jews. Jesus started his ministry with the Jews. But something unique begins to unfold, even as you read through the book of Acts. We see that Paul, in Acts chapter 9, is given the nod. He's selected by God to be the apostle to the who? The Gentiles. And yet, what does Paul demonstrate in his ministry? Everywhere he goes, where does he go and preach the gospel first? To the Jews in the synagogues. And when you get all the way specifically to chapter 18 and 19, you want to hear, know what Paul is, begins to say? As the gospel is going further and further out, the Jews begin to reject more and more. And finally, you hear these kind of words, words like this. Fine, you're rejecting. I will now go to the Gentiles. That's what begins to happen. But what was unexpected even though it was hinted at, and we could look at different parts in the Old Testament where we would see this, now in light of the gospel and in light of Jesus, what was unexpected was that the order of salvation would shift to Gentiles first and then Jews. That this pattern would evolve. That that Gentile, remember we looked at that pattern last week, that the Jewish people would reject, there would be a Gentile inclusion, and then there would be a, a forthcoming Jewish inclusion back in. That is what the Old Testament does not clearly anticipate, and that is what Paul seems to be highlighting as the mystery let me say it as simply as I can. The mystery seems to be this process of Gentile and then Jewish inclusion. This making the Jewish nation jealous, the Jewish people jealous with the grace that has flown, overflown into the Gentiles. That's why he says this. He says that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then notice verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. What does he mean when he says in this way? He's simply, I think, referring to that pattern, this process that he has been laying out in Romans chapter 11. In this way, through this pattern... And I mentioned last week that I'm, I'm persuaded more so to see this as something that's concurrent instead of sequential, okay? In other words, Paul seems to demonstrate that this pattern is evidenced throughout the entirety of his ministry. He talks about it being the reality now in, in these verses that we've already read. Rather than simply saying there's going to be a a block of Je Jewish people who reject, a block of Gentiles who accept, and then a block of Jewish people who then embrace. I I'm not persuaded that, that it's sequential necessarily. I do think, again, I said this last week, I do think there's a possibility that both things are kind of true. So in other words, that this is the normal pattern for how Jewish people are saved. In this way, they're made jealous by the mercy and grace that re Gentiles receive, and that God is still saving Jewish people, and then possibly, possibly towards the very end of all of human history, there could be a larger scale group of Israelites, ethnic Jews, who get saved. This is a debated issue. Again, I mentioned that last week. What does this mean, all Israel? That's another debated issue. What does he mean all Israel will be saved? Again, I just want to acknowledge we need to tread lightly here um, and not be overly dogmatic. I read, um, again, some commentaries this week, and, and I, I, was, I was laughing to myself yesterday because in one commentary I was just kind of um, referencing just to kind of think through these issues again, and there were eight different views on what this could possibly mean, just in this one commentary. A lot of them are, are pretty close in terms of a lot of overlap, but, but all that to say where these kind of issues have been debated historically and for, for long periods of time where there are multiple views, it's always just a good check to kind of go, okay, let's, not, let's be careful we're not overly dogmatic about things that theologians and scholars and pastors and Christians have debated for a long time. I want to say this too. Um, 
in, in our church, we love the Word of God, and we value the Word of God. We preach the Word of God. I also want to say that there's, there's, this is, should be a place where we love to discuss the Word of God. So even where we have contrary positions and views on things, there should always be this desire to have healthy discussion with one another, to share our views, and to be charitable with one another. I, I also just want to make it clear. Listen, you're free to disagree on a lot of these issues, but, but I think what you, you're not free to do is trample on other people um, because they hold a different view than you, or, or be aggressive or harsh with how you hold your views. Let's just be incredibly gracious and charitable, and I think that, that all of you are and understand that, but it's a good reminder. It's a good reminder for me, and I hope it is for you. Let's discuss, let's degree charitably, disagree charitably, let's wrestle over these things in a healthy way. So what does this mean? Well, some see this idea that all Israel will be saved as saying that there's going to come a time when the whole nation of Israel will be saved. So in other words, ethnic Israel will be gathered together at some point in history, and they collectively will be saved. Now, here's what this can't mean. It's, it's, it can't mean that every single Jewish person will be saved. It can't mean that. It could mean that, um, you know, this is kind of hyperbolic in the sense that the large majority of Jews that were, are remaining on earth at that time could be saved. It's very possible um, that it, it means that. The problem with that, I think, again, is that Paul has been telling us that not all Israel is Israel. And he's made this clear that this has always been the case. We, we saw this all the way back in Romans chapter 9. He's made a very clear distinction between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. He's always said that there is an Israel, an ethnically Jewish people within the nation of Israel, and they were the true Israel. So I just, you have to keep that in mind. He's already given us some clues, I think, as to what he's been talking about and what he's trying to communicate Again, it could mean that a large majority of ethnic Jews get saved at a point in history. Some people say, here's another view, that all Israel means all Jews and Gentiles will be saved. So, in other words, what he's doing is he's saying that all Israel is now the fullness of the Gentiles who are elect and the fullness who are of ethnic Jews who are elect. They all make up collectively this Israel, all Israel that he's talking about. And there's been a lot of people who have held that view throughout history, and I would say that there's good reason for that. Some of you are like, well, how can he actually, how could he say that? Or how could that, that be what it means? Let me give you some reasons why that could be the case. Paul probably uses this idea of, of all Israel in this all-inclusive sense in Galatians 6.16. Probably uses it here when he talks about the people of God as the Israel of God. And he says something similar when he calls Christians in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 3, the true circumcision. And, and I would just say this, the New Testament often frequently uses terms that were historically reserved only for ethnic Israelites and then unreservedly applies them to the New Testament church. Peter does this. Paul does this, John does this. I mean, I just think, I think that the New Testament is actually repeat, replete with this kind of a concept that in other words, that the New Testament authors want the New Testament believers to identify themselves with the Old Testament people of God. And what they don't want you to do is see this radical distinction between the two. In fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 goes to great lengths to say that the dividing wall has now come down. There is therefore now Jew nor Greek. There is one new man in Christ. He's emphasizing the unity of Jews and Gentiles in the church and fighting against making distinctions. But that doesn't obliterate ethnicity. That simply means that your ethnicity has nothing to do with your inclusion in the people of God and nothing to do with your salvation and you being the recipient of grace. Nothing. But I would say that I'm not convinced that's what Paul is doing here. It's possible that he is, but, but I, I would say this. It doesn't seem so, and here's, here's why. Because ten times Paul uses Israel in these last few chapters. Ten other times, I should say. This is the eleventh time. And every other time he uses Israel, he's referring to ethnic Israelites. 
And it would just be confusing to me that all of a sudden here he would make that shift. Not impossible, because I think there's precedent in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, where he talks about all Israel is not Israel, but it just doesn't seem like it flows as naturally. Besides, he's trying to make it clear that God is not finished with ethnic Israel. So I think for those reasons, I think he means that all the ethnic Jews that have ever been saved and will ever be saved. I think that's what he means when he says all Israel will be saved. All of the elect Israelites, ethnic Jews from all times throughout the entire church age, they will be saved, listen, in this way, through this pattern of Jewish rejection, Gentiles making them jealous because of their inclusion, and then all of a sudden, Jews coming back. All the Jews that God has elected will be saved. There will be a time in which the complete number of both Gentile and Jew will come into the church through Jesus Christ. And to emphasize that, that's what he's talking about. He quotes here from the Old Testament, specifically from the book of Isaiah, chapters 59 and chapters 27. Look what he says. And again, he quotes these to to, to reinforce the point he's making. He says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, I want you to notice here what he's specifically referring to. These verses are referring to the salvation of a people that God will call to himself from exile those who previously rejected him and resisted him. This is only speaking of salvation here. That's what this is pointing to. It's speaking to inclusion in the new covenant that the Gentiles have already been recipients of through Jesus Christ. Even though, these verses tell us, even though Israel is under judgment for rejecting Jesus, there is still hope if they turn to the deliverer who will come from Zion. He is the only one who can banish ungodliness. He is the only one who can take away sins. And this Redeemer is not only for ethnic Jews, but for all who repent and believe. And if we just pause for a moment and think about what these verses are saying... We, we can here get really quickly to the Christmas story, can't we? It's, it's very, somebody said to me earlier this week, well, I'm sure you'll get to, the, to, to Christmas. It's, it's not hard to get anywhere in the Bible to Christmas, which is absolutely true. Listen, if, if you're reading the Bible and you can't get yourself to Jesus, listen, you're not reading the Bible correctly. Now, there's right ways and wrong ways to get yourself to Jesus, so be careful. But listen, all of the Bible is pointing us to Jesus. And this reminder This reminder here that the deliverer will come from Zion is a powerful reminder that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. God in flesh, the deliverer of all of humanity, he came from heaven to earth for us. And why did he come at Christmas? He came in a cradle, but he had his eyes set upon a cross. He knew the way to deliver humanity The way to banish ungodliness from Jacob, from ethnic Jews, and from all those in this world was one way only. It was to go to a cross. It was to pay the punishment for sin. It was to rise victoriously from the grave. It was to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. It was to offer atonement to fulfill all of the law and all of the prophets. And at Christmas, when we think about what Christmas is all about, we cannot disconnect the incarnation and the birth of Jesus from the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, if you remove the cross, what you have is sentimentality. You have a great cute story about a little baby in a manger and people bringing him gifts and and you can give gifts to one another and celebrate and have a good time. That's the world's version of Christianity and and hardly, hardly the world's at that, to be honest with you. Our version of Christmas is so much richer, so much fuller. It leads us to the place where we can claim, here, here is born the deliverer of humanity, the one in whom we have put all of our faith and all of our trust, the one who saves us from our sins and restores us into right relationship with God, the one who justifies us by his resurrection. Amen? And the awesome mystery is presented here for us. Verse 28 and 29, look at this. This is 
as regards the gospel, that's what we just talked about, right? They are enemies for your sake. Here's the pattern again. Remember the pattern that we, we keep seeing. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. In other words, listen, God, you say, why, why does God want to still save Jews? Why didn't he just be done with them? Listen, because God loves the Jewish people because he first called the Jewish people. They were the first fruits. The patriarchs were made these promises. And through the Jewish people, God would bring about the deliverer, the redeemer. And so you say, well, why would God do this? Listen, this is just another display of God's overwhelming grace. Should God accept the Jewish people? No. But here's a better question. Should God accept anybody? No. This is like the icing on the cake of the salvation story. This awesome mystery And he wants to affirm that though they've rejected Jesus Christ, it's not the end of their story. He's not completely done with them. Look at what he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You say, what are those gifts and what are those callings? What blessing in particular is he talking about here? What promises in particular? It is this and this alone, the promise of salvation. And all the blessings that come with it. Do you realize there's no blessing that you can receive from God in in any kind of eternal sense that comes apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ? It flows in and through Jesus Christ, from Jesus Christ. All the riches that are found in Christ. Every blessing given to Israel has now been given to the Gentiles. This is staggering. All of them, they are bound up. You say, how? Because they're bound up in Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3 that we are partakers in Christ. Everything that they were offered in salvation, everything that would flow from salvation is now ours in Christ, which is why the New Testament makes such a big deal about us being in Christ. Because apart from Christ, not only can we do nothing, but we have nothing. We are partakers. And they can still be recipients of all that God promised and all that we have and enjoy in Christ This is what he said in that analogy that he gave us with that wild olive shoot being grafted in. You see, wild and natural branches can both be grafted into the true vine, Jesus Christ. What an awesome mystery. An awesome mystery that displays, secondly, God's awesome mercy. And he wants to get to mercy so quickly here. He says this, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable for just as you were at one time disobedient. Remember, just in case you think that rejection is the end of the story, just at one time you were disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. There's the pattern. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may, look at what it says, now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It should be very clear from this passage that there's only one way of salvation. There's not not one way for the Jews and one way for the Gentiles. There's one way and one way alone, and his name is Jesus Christ. And it happens the same way, by the way. It happens the same way. You know what that way is? Mercy. Mercy is the way that we have been saved. Mercy is the way the Jews must be saved. And here's why. Because he he tells us, we were all disobedient, and we have therefore all received mercy. There's not one person who's saved who wasn't saved by the mercy and grace and kindness of God. And there's a sense, church, listen, the way you receive mercy is a coming attraction to the Jews. We talked about this last week. It's a coming attraction to the Jews, and indeed, it's a coming attraction to the whole world. You are a billboard for how mercy is lavished upon somebody who is disobedient and undeserving. 
And it's just been poured out on you. And so you walk around, and as people look at your life, they're supposed to say, man, man, that's what I need. That's what I want. How can I get that? And your answer is the same to every person. It's the exact same. You come to Christ, and you can have the mercy of God. The attractiveness of God's mercy is magnetic. Verse 32, for God has consigned all to disobedience. Everyone is overwhelmingly guilty, but God, listen, is overwhelmingly gracious. We've all been consigned. It's interesting language. We've all been consigned to disobedience. That word consigned means this idea of being hemmed up, stitched in, bound up in it. In other words, the gospel, it shuts us up in a sense. It shows us that we are consigned, we're hemmed in, we're locked in a prison cell in one sense of our own making. And all of our attempts to justify ourselves are met, listen, with a hand over our mouth. Everybody, we're like, yeah, but, but I've got a good, mm. the gospel just kind of just closes our mouths. It shuts our mouths. It declares instead that there, there is no excuse, there's no justification, that everybody is guilty before God. This is what Paul said in Romans 3, 9 through 12, in verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world held accountable to God. Everyone is guilty so that he, you say, why is it necessary? This is so good evangelistically, okay? You cannot just preach the gospel as if it's just some, you know, everything's awesome, just believe in Jesus, everything's good, and your life's going to change, and, and everything's going to be better just with Jesus. If that's your version of the gospel, you're missing such an important aspect of the gospel. And that's, that's not the gospel, actually. That's, not, that's actually not the gospel. You cannot proclaim the gospel without convincing somebody or showing somebody that they are absolutely, overwhelmingly guilty before God. Here's, here's why. Because for you to preach the gospel accurately, you have to be able to show people that the gift of salvation is only by the mercy of God. It, it, it is not because you've earned it. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you're better than anybody else. And so often, this is exactly where people are at. They don't embrace Jesus because they don't think they need Jesus. They think they're fine with Jesus. They need to see that they stand guilty and condemned before the Almighty God. They will one day give an account for every careless word spoken, every evil, wicked thought, every wicked, sinful deed, Everything will be fully exposed, and they one day, listen, one day, they will know for certain that they have no excuse. Our job, listen, as Christians, is to convince them of that before they stand before God. And if we do that, listen, the best part about the gospel is that though that is true, you can be saved because of the mercy of God. You can have grace. You can turn and be forgiven. You can be cleansed and washed and renewed and reconciled. Like this is the awesome beauty of mercy. You don't have to live in your sins. You don't have to pay for your sins. Jesus can pay for those on your behalf. You don't have to live a perfect life. You don't have to try to earn God's acceptance. Jesus lived a perfect life for you and earned acceptance on your behalf. All you have to do is reach out and take it by faith. Turn from your sins and believe upon Jesus Christ. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved, the scriptures teach. Mercy on all? Some have, have wrongly understood this to teach that God saves all people without exception. But that's not what this is teaching. Let me be clear on that. This is not about God saving all people without exception. This is about God saving all people without distinction. Universalism, that's the idea that God saves all people without exception. Universalism, is, it's the idea that, that in the end, it doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't ultimately matter how you lived, in the end, everybody gets saved, which is a doctrine of Satan. 
That would clearly contradict everything that God has said and that Paul has written for the last 11 chapters. It would dismantle it. It would make it utterly ridiculous. No, what God is saying in this, mercy on all, is that God saves without distinction. When he shows his saving mercy, he doesn't do so because some are better or more deserving, because all are guilty. We are completely reliant on God's mercy. There is no reason on our end why God should have shown it to us or dispensed it to us. As has often been said, the only thing you've done to make your salvation necessary is your sin. You haven't accomplished anything about the sin, but the sin that's made it so necessary. It is all dependent upon God's character and not ours. And again, let me just tie this into your Christmas week and your Christmas celebrations. This is such a great time to pause and reflect on God's mercy. Do you realize that the incarnation is God's mercy? I was thinking about it like this this week. You ever, you ever watch your kids, you know, doing something that they clearly can't do? You know, you know what I'm talking about? And I don't care what age they are, particularly when they're younger, but maybe even as they're a little bit older. They just keep trying and failing and trying and failing, and they keep slapping your hand. I don't need your, I don't want your help, right? Hey, how many times do we got to hear that? And, and, you know, for a while, you're just sitting back and going like, okay, keep going, have at it, see how that works out for you. But eventually, eventually, either you get frustrated enough, sick enough, tired enough, or hopefully your heart breaks enough where you're like, okay, okay, okay. Here, let, let me do this for you. Well, the incarnation is kind of like that. For so many of us, you know, we're the children who, who for so long tried to do it and tried to do it. We tried to obey the law. We tried to make ourselves acceptable. We tried to merit our salvation in some way, shape, or form. And we kept slapping God's hand away. I don't need your help. I don't need your help. I don't need your help. And the incarnation is God stepping in and saying, it's my turn. Move over. I'm here to help. And here is our Savior who does what we cannot, who pays the price for our sins, and again, who offers us freely salvation. This is all mercy. It is awesome mercy. And one author says it like this, when all, think about this during your Christmas season, when all thy mercies, oh my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder love, and praise. Man, may our hearts be there this Christmas season. Look at all the mercies of God. Whatever misery you're experiencing in your life, listen, the depth of your misery can't even compare to the depths of God's mercy that has been poured out to you in Christ Jesus. And that is truth to make your heart sing this Christmas. And let me give you one final one. God's awesome awesome majesty. And here it is, the culmination of all of this deep thinking, of all of this deep, rich theology, some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. It's an eruption of praise, and it sums up the doctrines of grace in this entire letter. Verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, it's like Paul just can't help himself when he gets to this point. And this is both spontaneous and calculated at the same time. You know, there's this calculation in his heart. There's this, this building of praise in his heart. But then he gets to this place where he simply cannot contain it any longer. And he bursts forth. Like, this isn't like a, you know, when you read these words, oftentimes we don't read Scripture properly. We don't infuse it with the proper, you know, um, um, emphasis or, or the, the voice. You know, when you read this Scripture, some of you read it like this. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. If you're reading like that, you're missing the point, okay? This, is, this isn't like Paul groaning, oh, the depth and the riches. It's not like, you know, some of us are like, we think of, like Paul is so pious and so reverential. He could, he could never, he could never kind of get out of his shoes kind of praise. This is like Paul, like, oh, oh. 
Like, this is awesome. This is what Paul is doing. Okay, you, you have to see Paul is not afraid to tell you how he really feels about what the gospel of grace has done in his own life and what it means for all humanity. It is awesome. And he sees in it the majesty of God, which is so powerful and so praise-inducing, even in his own heart. Paul stands in awe at the wonder of grace and mercy. And listen, church, this is so important. When we have rightly understood God, our right response is both humility and praise. Humility because we see how undeserving we are, we see who we truly are, how inadequate and insufficient we are, and how awesomely gracious and merciful our God is. Amen? This here is theology that leads to doxology. It is a study of God and a praise of God that cannot be undone. Theology, let me say it again, is incomplete if it doesn't end in doxology. And on the other hand, doxology, listen, this is important too, doxology is inadequate without theology. It is simply empty praise. It is shallow. And there are two ditches that we need to avoid when we are thinking about this issue. The first ditch is this, you know, the two ditches on the side of the road. I want us to get in the middle here. So avoid these ditches and maybe find out which ditch maybe you gravitate towards. First is this, uh, uh, over-intellectualism that is anti-emotional, Okay. Some of you already know, this is my box, check. Over-intellectualism that is anti-emotional. In other words, this is the person who has a fascination with study that never affects the heart. It's cold, it's dead. It's like a scientist in a lab that kind of just likes to look at the data. You're like a robot, like, Get the information in, okay. That's right, I just did the robot on stage. <laughs> it's the person who is interested in truth but has no joy or praise flowing from their mouths or their lives. Some of you are information junkies and this is your tendency. Some of you are actually stuck here or you've lived here. Maybe you've come from upbringings or denominations or traditions that are anti-emotional altogether, that have a view of worship and reverence that doesn't include a category for any, any kind of emotion or any kind of celebration. And I would just simply say to you, if that's your, like, I get, I want to be clear, I get there are different personalities, there are different degrees by, through which this can be expressed, but if you have this view that is anti-emotional, that discredits emotion, you don't understand the scriptures. You certainly don't understand Israel's songbook, the Psalms, because they tell us repeatedly, repeatedly, clap your hands, sing to the Lord a new song. They encourage us to use symbols to shout to the Lord with loud voices. I mean, you can't get away from the fact that so much of the scriptures, especially the Psalms, call to a kind of emotional response that is right and actually, listen, church, this is so good, pleasing to the Lord. And some of you who are like anti-emotional when it comes to worshiping the Lord in church, it's not that you're anti-emotional. Some of you maybe you're like just dead. I don't know. You actually are robots. Check you out afterwards. But but some of you do get emotional. You get emotional about the things you love, about the things you. You get emotional about your hobbies. You get excited and passionate when you talk about certain people maybe in your life or things that you pursue. So you're not actually anti-emotional, but let me just ask you this question. Why not, why not get emotional about Jesus? He is the treasure of all treasures. He is the one who is of infinite value. There should be nothing more meaningful in any of our lives than Jesus Christ. Amen? And if we can't get excited and emotional about Jesus and what he's done in saving us, we, we, we maybe don't understand Jesus or we don't understand who we truly are and what we truly deserve, but there is a place, listen, for emotion in the Christian life. I have a good friend, Robbie Simons, who says this. He, he told me this recently. You know, there's some people I don't understand. They can sit just cold in the middle of worship songs. They just, no expression, no movement, hands in pockets, arms folded. I just, I need to be honest with you. I don't understand. I'm all for having a bad day. Just want to be clear. But I, as, a, as a pattern, this makes no sense to me if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, I can't figure out how that is in any way, shape, or form pleasing to the Lord. 
My friend Robbie Simon says, like, in some of you, some of you who do this, you're like all in your head. It's all your, you're just like, I love theology. Well, well, he says this, tell your head to tell your heart to tell your face. <laughs> some of you are like, well, I don't like what you just said, Ian. Well, take it up with the Word of God. Because you want to know what the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs 15, 13? It says, a cheerful heart makes a glad face. In other words, listen, when our heart is affected by truth, when it's truly filled with joy, guess what? We, we express it. It's visible, again, to varying degrees. But some of us need to be pushed outside of the box. Like, we're just like, we're too worried about what other people think. We've got in our heads this wrong thinking about what it means to truly, like, get away from that. Let's get back to what the Scriptures call us to. Let's respond in the ways that are appropriate to the Lord. But you see, there is another Another ditch that we can fall into, and that is this. I know some of you are like, well, I can't wait till he, I hope he gets here. It's the anti-intellectual, the person who is overly focused on emotion and experience. They're all emotion. Listen, all emotion and no thought. It's the happy-go-lucky Christian that kind of just walk along, do-do-do, clicking their heels. I'm not going to do that. I could do the robot. That's about it. I'm not very good. Or you hear people say stuff like this. It's, it's, not, it's not doctrine that matters. It's experience that matters. And I'm just like, what? Like, I have to pull, pull my hair out when I hear people say stuff like that. That is so against the word of God. God would never say something like that. Do you realize that? In fact, the Bible makes much of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't pit information against experience and emotion. Don't pit them against each other. God loves information. In case you hadn't realized, he gave us a whole book of information. But listen, when you know and understand it, when you truly know and understand it, your emotions should be affected. I mean, I just can't help but think of the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest intellectual minds in the history of the church. Obviously, one of the most passionately worshiping Christians in the history of the church. Praise should flow out of our study. And we need more of this as a church. We often think um, worship of God prepares our heart for the Word of God, right? That's how we structure our service a lot of times, why we front load our worship. And, can I, and, and by the way, there is some precedent for that. There are Psalms of Ascent leading into the, the temple that are supposed to prepare our hearts. But it's more true to say that the Word of God prepares us for the worship of God. In a way, this sermon is actually a really long introduction to what we're going to do in just a moment, which is worship. Worship is not the appetizer to the sermon. Can I get an amen, Mark Sylvester? <laughs> Worship is not the appetizer to the sermon. Do you realize that? It's the end goal of the sermon. Worship is more than singing, for sure. Paul's going to get into that in Romans chapter 12, but I tell you this, it is not less than singing. Do you realize there's a day coming when all of God's people will stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we will fall on our face, and we will sing to him a new song? I just want to be very clear that every week I preach in order that you might praise. We are not just a word church. We are a worshiping church. And really quickly, I want to give you three reasons. Three reasons. First, out of these verses here, look. First, we, we praise, okay? We praise him for his person. Verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. He quotes from the Old Testament here, Isaiah 40, 13. And look at the three things he speaks of. The depth of the riches. He is inexhaustible and unfathomable. They have been lavished on us in Christ. He is rich in mercy and love. This points to the fact that, that our God, he is of infinite value. There's nothing more valuable than God Almighty. And loved ones, listen, especially at Christmas time, God has given you his infinite self for free. Merry Christmas. 
depths of his wisdom and knowledge. I mean, just think about this. He is sovereign and he has absolute knowledge and wisdom. Think about the wisdom of the cross where God's justice and God's love collide in order to bring about our salvation. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. He is in absolute control. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Who would think of this plan of redemption but our God? And who, in his mercy and grace, would be the one to accomplish it? Only our God. Secondly, his perfection. Again, he quotes from the Old Testament, polls from the book of Job, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And I just think about his perfection. You want to praise God? Think about his perfection. God is so far above us. This is not a difference of degree, but of kind. God is not like us. We will never be God. He is creator and we are creation. Yes, created in his image, but do not be confused. This distinction is crucial to our worship. He has no equal. He has no one advising him. He needs nothing from anyone. He doesn't need your advice. He doesn't need your help. He rules the universe with his feet up and his hands behind his head. It is nothing to God because he is perfect in power. From everlasting to everlasting, he is perfect in every way, and he deserves our highest praise. There is no one like our God. Amen, church? Lastly, his purpose. Look at this. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, he is the creator. He is the source. He is the sustainer of life. He is the point and purpose for all existence. We are created to know him, to love him, and to worship and enjoy him forever. He and he alone deserves all honor all glory, and all praise, and he will forevermore. God, listen church, is the goal of everything, everything, and worship is the response. And it is only through the cross of Jesus Christ that we can know and experience and enjoy any of this. So while the world searches for purpose, while the world searches for meaning and satisfaction, church, rejoice. Rejoice this Christmas season, for you have found it. God, through Christ, has opened our eyes. He has changed our hearts, and he has revealed our purpose. 